This week on InfoSec Sync, we talk about iCloud phishing. Cisco industrial routers are exposed to attacks. Mokana launches an industrial Internet of Things security platform. We discuss Android and bring your own device. Also, weaponized Word documents target macOS and Windows. All these stories and more are coming up. So get ready to get in sync with InfoSec Sync. Hello, and welcome to the 33rd episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for Stories of the Week, ending March 24th, 2016. What up, InfoSexing fam? How y'all doing? What's up, another, everybody? Another week, another set of stories. So what we got going on this week, Matt? So we got a number of things going on. Uh, shout out to uh, a guy I know named Stan. He gave us his first story. What's uh, up, kinda, Stan? What up, Stan? So um, he told me to give him a shout out. Okay. So there we go. There's shout out given. So... um. This story was uh, on Krebs uh, on Security, which is a, as we know, is a blog site where the, you know he covers a number of stories, um, and you know some stories have sparked controversy. Others are, you know, it is what it is. Information security um, kind of news blog site. So um, one of those was it was titled "If Your iPhone Is Stolen, These Guys May." try to eye fish you oh wow <laughs> so it was actually a very elaborate story um it kind of covered these individuals that um got their phone taken uh and then got fished you know got a uh got a text message but the guy who was fished his friend was like one of these um kind of all source intelligence you know being able to pull in all sorts of uh, oh, open source right intelligence. There. You can't mess with him. No, so um, he was able to pull a lot of stuff in. So let's <laughs> jump into the story. So okay. um, Krebs on Security recently featured the story of a Brazilian man who was peppered with phishing attacks, trying to steal his Apple iCloud username and password after his wife's phone was stolen in a brazen daylight, daylight mugging. So um, this is just like a background example Um and today we'll take an insider's look at the iCloud phishing gang that appears to work quite closely with organized crime rings within the United States and beyond to remotely unlock and erase stolen Apple devices. So victims of iPhone theft can use Find My iPhone, uh, which is a feature to remotely locate, lock, or erase their iPhone just by visiting Apple's site and entering their iCloud username and password. Likewise, an iPhone thief can use those iCloud credentials to remotely unlock the victim's stolen iPhone, wipe the device, and resell it. As a result, iPhone thieves often subcontract the theft of those credentials to third-party iCloud phishing services. This story is about one of those services. Okay. Um, there's kind of a, a picture of a text message that was received. Um, it, this is a very elaborate scheme, um, but this looks legit. 
You know what I mean? It has like an Apple emoji. Uh, looks just like the logo. Um, and it has like the link and everything in there. But either way, uh, the story goes on. Recently, I heard from a security professional whose close friend received a targeted attempt to fish his Apple iCloud credentials. The phishing attack came several months after the friend's child lost his iPhone at a public park in Virginia. The fish arrived via text message and claimed to have been sent from Apple. It said the device tied his son's phone number and, um, had been found and that its precise location could be seen for the next 24 hours by clicking a link embedded in, in the text message. That security professional source, referred to as John, for simplicity's sake, so the guy wasn't like, he was able to pull the intelligence and all that stuff because he was a security professional and he had the background to do so. Okay. So again, you don't want to mess with those types of people, right? So... Um, John declined to be named or credited in the story because of some of the actions he took to gain the knowledge presented here may run afoul of U.S. computer fraud and abuse laws. So John said his friend clicked on the link in the text message and received a... In the text message, he received about the son's missing phone and was presented with a fake iCloud login page. Um, it was like Apple ID-AppleMX.us. A lookup on that domain indicates it's hosted on a server in Russia... That is or was shared by at least 440 other dom- or sorry, 140 other domains, mostly other apparent iCloud phishing sites, and uh, such as account account iCloud.site and Apple ID.store and Apple Device Found.org, and so on and so forth. Um, there will be a full list of the domains and a link included in our show notes, but. While the phishing server may have been hosted in Russia, its core users appeared to be completely in a different part of the world. Examining the server more closely, John noticed that it was misconfigured, this is good, in a way that leaked data about various internet addresses that were seen recently accessing the server, as well as the names of specific directories on the server being accessed. So after monitoring that logging information for some time, my source discovered, and this is Krebs talking, there were five internet addresses that communicated with the server multiple times a day. And those addresses corresponded to device located in Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador, and Mexico. You know, all the places where um, Apple is, right? Right, (laughs) exactly. Worldwide, baby. Yeah. (laughs) So um, he also found a file, you'll love this, openly accessible on the Russian server, which indicated that an application running on the server was constantly sending requests to IMEI24 and IMEIData.net. These services allow anyone to look up information about a mobile device by entering in its unique International Mobile Equipment Identity, or IMEI number. These servers return a variety of information, including make and model of the phone, whether Find My iPhone is enabled for the device, and whether the device has been locked or reported stolen. John said that he was conducting additional reconnaissance of the Russian server. He tried to access index.php, which commonly takes on uh, takes ones to a site homepage, when his browser was redirected to login.php instead. The resulting page, pictured below, is a login page for an application called iServer. The login page displays a custom version of Apple's trademark logo as part of a pirate skull and crossbones motif set against a background of bleeding orange flames. Looks legit. And it says on there, uh, iServer has sign-in, has a sign-in button, and it says just different. And they did put at the bottom, copyright 2017 iServer, all rights reserved. (laughs) So, pretty cool, right? He mm-hmm. kind of looked at the site, 
you know, went to normal index.php, which normally has a redirect to the site's homepage, and it took them to the login page. So what's left after that, right? Mm -hmm. See if they have brute force protections in place, right? So we'll see. So John told me that, and this is Krebs, that in addition to serving up that login page, the server also returned the HTML contents of index.php he originally requested from the server. When he saved the contents of index.php to his computer and viewed the file as a text file, he noticed that it inexplicably included a list of some 137 usernames, email addresses, and expiration dates for various users who had apparently paid a monthly fee to access the iCloud phishing service. They appeared to be resellers or people that have access to the Crimeware server. Um, and this is Krebs, my source said, of the user information listed on the server's index.php file. So if we look at the file, we see a number of um, usernames, emails, uh, when the um, email was created or when the login was created and the price that they charge or the price that that person owes. So it's actually pretty interesting how it goes from here. John told Krebs on security that with very little effort, he was able to guess the password of at least two other users listed in that file. After John logged into the iCloud phishing service with what those credentials um, were, the service informed him that the account he was using was expired. John was then prompted to pay for at least one more month's subscription access to the server to continue. <laughs> Playing along, John said he clicked OK, indicating he wished to renew his subscription and was taken to a shopping cart hosted on the domain hostingya.com. The payment form in turn was accepting PayPal payments for an account tied to an entity called HostingYa LLC. Viewing the HTML source on that payment page revealed that the PayPal account was tied to the email address admin at hostingya.com. According to the file coughed up by the Russian server, the first username on that user list was demonoy12. Mm -hmm. It's tied to the email address admin at lanzadorks.net and to a $0 subscription on the phishing service. This strongly indicates the user in question is an administrator of this phishing service. So we have, let's look at this. We have a user, right? And if we're looking at the um, index.php file, right, when he viewed it, you're probably looking at it, at it too, Nick, on your side. So we see demonoid 12, right, which is, we see other ones, right? There's email addresses for the usernames and stuff like that. Right. But then that is the only one that has an admin at, mm -hmm. right? I so he kind of reversed it and said, all right, if they're accepting payment with an admin at um, hostingyad.com, uh, the first username on that list was tied to an email address, admin at lanzadorks.net. Very interesting stuff. So a review of lanzadorks.net indicated that it is a phishing as a service offering that advertises the ability to launch targeted phishing attacks on a variety of free online services, including accounts at Apple, Hotmail, Gmail, and Yahoo, among others. A reverse Whois lookup ordered from DomainTools.com shows that the admin at LonzaDorks.net email is linked to the registration data for exactly two domains, HostingYa.info and LonzaDorks.net. Full disclosure, Domain Tools is currently one of the several advertisers on Krebs on Security. That was in there. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of a disclosure there. So hostingya.info is registered to Dario D. I'm not going to say the whole name, but 
It'll be on the Krebs on Security article. One of the other $0 accounts that um, included near the top of the list of users that are authorized users to access the iCloud phishing service. The site says Dorego's account corresponds to the email address dario.hostingyah.com. The name Dario D also appears in the site registration records for 31 other website domains, which are all listed in the Krebs on Security um, report. John said that he was able to guess the passwords for at least six other accounts on the iCloud phishing service, including one particularly interesting user and possible reseller of the service who picked the username Jonathan. Below is a look at the home screen for Jonathan's account on this iCloud phishing service. We can see that the system indicates Jonathan was able to at least at, obtain at least 65 hacked IDs through this service, and he pays $80 a month to access it. So here are some of the details for Tanya, which is one such victims tied to Jonathan's account. Tanya's personal details have been redacted from the image, but basically it shows um, the name, uh, IMEI number, the phone number, the Email, language, URL. everything, right? So this is like iCloud phishing as a service. And, and the model of the phone, too. Right, so it must ask the user this information in the phishing attempt for them to populate all this information. But either way, here is the iCloud phishing page Tanya would have seen if she clicked on the link sent to her via the text message. Notice that the victim's full email address is automatically populated into the username portion of the login page to make the scam feel more like Apple's actual iCloud site. So we see that, you know, the last part of the is Tanya at, and the last part is redacted, right? But it, if you look at that um, login screen for the sign into iCloud, that looks pretty legit. That looks legitimate. They even have like the Apple Watch with the display. Yeah, it's it looks, got a nice picture. Yeah, it looks pretty legit. Um, either way, the page below from Jonathan's profile lists at least each lists each of his sixty plus victims individually, detailing their name, email address, iCloud password, phone number, unique IMEI, iPhone model generation, and some random notes apparently inserted by Jonathan. So, the next screenshot shows the SMS sent page. It tracks which victims were sent which variation of the phishing scam offered by the site, whether the target had clicked the link in the phony iCloud phishing text, and if any of those targets ever visited the fake iCloud login pages. Users of the phishing service can easily add a new phishing domain if their old link gets cleaned up or shut down by an anti-phishing or anti-spam group. This service also advertises the ability to track when phishing links have been flagged by anti-phishing companies. This this is like crazy the amount of organization that they have in this thing. But this is where the story turns both comical and ironic. Many times attackers will test their exploit on themselves whilst failing to fully redact their personal information. Jonathan apparently tested the phishing attacks on himself using his actual iCloud credentials. And the data was indexed by Jonathan's phishing account at the fake iCloud server, of which our guy who's doing all this reconnaissance and all this stuff is seeing right in short he fished himself and forgot to delete the successful results <laughs> so they blurred out um jonathan's icloud password in the screenshot but um see if you can guess what john did john did next yes he logged into jonathan's icloud account helpfully one of the screenshots in the photos saved to john's icloud account 
is of Jonathan logged into the same phishing server that leaked his iCloud account information. Wow. The following advertisement for Jonathan's service, also one of the images found in Jonathan's iCloud account, includes prices he charges for his own remote iPhone unlocking service. It appears the pricing is adjusted upwards considerably for phishing attacks on newer model stolen iPhones, which doesn't make sense, right? Because it's basically sending a link to any of these phones. It doesn't increase or decrease in difficulty, right? It's the same thing, but... The price for phishing an iPhone 4 or 4S is $40 per message versus $120 per message for phishing attacks aimed at iPhone 6S and 6S Plus users. Presumably, this is because the crooks hiring this service stand to make more money selling the newer phones. Oh, that's why. Okay. Right. So the email address that Jonathan used to register on the Apple iPhone phishing service shown in one of the screenshots above is it's um, Jonah iCloud at gmail.com was also used to register an account on Facebook hmm, tied to Jonathan Rodriguez who says he's from Puerto Rico. <laughs> it, it just so happens that this Jonathan Rodriguez on Facebook also uses his profile to advertise a remove iCloud service. Mm. What are the odds? Very interesting. Sharply dressed dude here. Is that really him you think? Uh, potentially. I mean <laughs> he, he definitely got a glamour shot special on Groupon. Um, he, he probably scammed somebody on Groupon for that. But so, well, pretty good advertise or pretty good considering the Facebook users, also the administrator of a Facebook group called iCloud unlock Ecuador worldwide. Incredibly, Facebook says there are 2,797 members of this group. And then it, this John guy, not Jonathan, but John, the guy doing all like the reconnaissance and stuff got into the group. Hmm. And kind of showed everything that's on there. So Jonathan's Facebook profile picture would have us believe that he is a male model. But the many selfies he apparently took and left on his iCloud account show a much softer softer side of Jonathan. (laughs) Wow. So among the members of the Facebook group is Alexis Cadena, whose name appears in several of the screenshots tied to Jonathan's account in the iCloud phishing service. So Alexis C. apparently also has his own iCloud phishing service. It's not clear if he sublets it to Jonathan or what, but um, Alexis had some ads, right? So coming back to Jonathan, the beauty of the iCloud service and the lure used by Jonathan's phishing service is that iPhones can be located fairly accurately in a specific or to a specific address. Alas, because Jonathan fished his own iCloud account, we can see that according to Jonathan's iCloud account, or iCloud service, his phone was seen in the following neighborhood in Ecuador, March 7, 2017. The map shows a small radius a few blocks within Yan, what is that? Yansaza, a town of 10,000 in southern Ecuador. So Jonathan did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Wow. That's a crazy Krebs story, on security. Matt. Yeah, Krebs on security, great story. Stan, thanks for bringing it up to kind of say on the show. Um, Brian Krebs, thanks for putting it up there. This was a very interesting story end-to-end. Um, recent story, actually, right? This was this month that this happened. And, uh, yeah, you never know who you're scamming or whose phone you're taking or whatever. you got to be very careful with that stuff. Obviously, in this case, um, you know, John was a security professional, 
had experience with reconnaissance and kind of um, looking at, I uh, don't know how he got the credentials to get into the server, but right. it probably was some type of brute force or, you know, <clears throat> something of that nature. But either way, you definitely want to watch out with uh, who you're uh, messing with. But very interesting. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on it, Nick? I just think it's a crazy story, man. <laughs> um, you know, I, I wonder if any of that stuff was used for um, the the fappening too. You heard that came out this past week, right? Yeah. So there's there's more there's more people, um, of course, always taking photos and uh, people wanting to see all that information. So I don't know. It's just it's just crazy all the stuff that's going on these days, man. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. So you want to take us into our uh, our next one? Yeah, so um, the next one has to do with Cisco. And um, on Wednesday, Cisco informed customers that some of its industrial routers are exposed to attacks due to a critical remote code execution vulnerability in the IOX uh, application environment. The flaw identified as CVE 2017-3853 affects the data in motion process of... Uh, IOX 10X and is caused by the lack of proper bounds checking. A remote unauthenticated attacker can exploit the vulnerability to trigger a stack overflow. And we know that by sending specifically crafted packets that are forwarded to the DMO process for evaluation. Successful exploitation of the security hole can allow the attacker to execute arbitrary code with root privileges, of course, in the virtual instance running on the vulnerable device. However, Cisco pointed out that the router itself is not impacted. The vulnerability affects Cisco IR-809 and IR-829 industrial integrated service routers running versions 1.0.0.0 and 1.1.0.0. Users can determine what versions running on their devices through the local manager interface. The flaw has been patched with the release of uh, 1.2.4.2 and CISO says it's not aware of any attacks exploiting this vulnerability. Um, on Wednesday as well, they published seven other advisories describing high severity vulnerabilities affecting iOS software and the application hosting framework component of 10X. The CAF weakness described as arbitrary file creation and path traversal issues affect not only 800 series industrial routers, but also 4,000 series integrated services routers, or ISR4K, and ASR1000 series aggregation services routers, ASR1K. A majority of the iOS and iOS XE problems allow remote attackers to cause devices to reload and enter a denial of service condition, and one can be exploited to inject arbitrary commands with root privileges. Only the command injection exploit requires authentication. Wow. Uh, these flaws were discovered by Cisco, and there's no evidence of exploitation, so all the security bugs have been patched. So good on you, Cisco, for finding your own bug and patching it so your customers can sleep with ease tonight. <laughs> yeah, and especially with uh, Internet of Things and uh, dealing with SCADA devices, um, all sorts of things, you know, it's, it's critical that these vendors... Um, of these products, whether it's like Schneider Electric or Cisco or APC mm-hmm. or any of these companies, um, kind of can 
either have a bug bounty program and be responsible with disclosure and uh, going after these bugs that are in software and hardware and firmware, um, it's going to become ever more critical because this stuff's put online and it can't come down. It's high availability. Um, so, you know, having continuous monitoring and sustainment of these systems is big. Uh, we got to make sure that the code is updated and that, you know, disclosure of bugs and patching of bugs is definitely happening. That the fact that they did it in-house, you know, I would expect Cisco to be doing this. They're, That's great. They're, they're kind of, yeah, they're kind of like Microsoft, right? Where Microsoft and Apple, any of the big companies, they're going to try to have their own vulnerability research team internally, kind of look at the software that they've deployed and, uh, you know, find the holes before somebody else finds an O-Day on the outside. And in this case, you know, we were able, well, with this particular vulnerability, we're able to inject arbitrary commands with root privileges. Not a good, not a good look at all, um, especially if you put something on that router or on that network device that remains persistent with those root privileges and you can cover things up. So good on them. You know, right. hats off to them. And with that, uh, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. VicTech provides information assurance solutions that result in higher efficiency and protection in defense of their clientele. Their expertise in information security controls and the CNA processes, such as the risk management framework, NIST 837, and supporting lifecycle processes, is why commercial and government entities trust and rely on their solutions. VicTech combines innovative business practices and strategies with their technical expertise and base their own success on customers achieving their goals. Visit them on the web today at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And we're back. And we're back. All right, so time to jump into our next story. Um, Mokana uh, launches an industrial Internet of Things security platform, kind of goes along with the last story uh, that Nick presented with Cisco and what they were doing. This is kind of a different way, different approach. But as the industrial Internet of Things, IIoT, new term there, um, begins to revolutionize productivity, it too does, it dramatic, does dramatically increase the industry's cyber attack surface. What has been missing is a single platform to provide or enable security across the entirety of IIoT. Did you um, happen to see Mokana at RSA? Um, no, I didn't. It doesn't okay. mean they weren't there. I just didn't see they were there. Okay. So what's funny is they're a San Francisco-based company, but either way, to fill this gap, Mokana, which is a San Francisco-based firm that specializes in security for embedded devices, has today released its new IoT security platform, which is a full-stack security solution designed to protect industrial IoT devices and device-to-cloud communications. The platform builds on the cybersecurity technology Mokana has already um, had out there for embedded devices. In particular, it provides software capabilities, a single set of APIs, and a path to utilize Mokana's plan management and analytic capability. Mokana, um, the new platform updates 11 existing Mokana software modules, but also and importantly introduces two new innovations, NanoTap and NanoAid. The former provides a vendor agnostic software abstraction layer that allows manufacturers to take full advantage of the latest security chip technologies such as the Infineon Optiga Trusted Platform Module, TPM, ARM Trust Zone, Intel SGX, and the Intel EPID. 
These new chips provide a hardware-based root of trust for embedded systems, significantly increasing the security and trustworthiness of the devices. NanoTap is a new software module that allows applications to make use of the security capabilities of the, the new hardware. Mm-hmm. NanoAid solves one of the major problems in IIoT, security identity for secure communications. It's not the technology that's the problem, but getting it to scale to the billions of devices that compromise the IoT. The technology is to use X509 digital certificates to verify the individual device identity and allow secure communication between the device and its controller, whether that is local or in the cloud. Pretty cool stuff. The standard simple certificate enrollment protocol, SCEP, or SCEP, commonly used to enroll digital certificates requires a manual process that cannot scale to the volume required for IIoT. Mokana's Nano Aid solution is uh, including enrollment over Secure Transport, EST, a new standard that automates the management and enrollment of digital certificates. Mokana now supports both SCEP and EST to provide the flexibility and scale for managing public key infrastructure using the standard X509 certificates, announced the company in a blog post today. When it comes to mission-critical IoT security, there is no middle ground or acceptable margin for error, said William Diot, who is the CEO of Mokana. Hackers have demonstrated their ability to get behind firewalls and take over IoT devices. Once an attacker has control of an IoT device or controller behind a firewall, they can wreak havoc by manipulating flow controls, valves, compressors, power systems, and engine controls that result in a loss of critical services and loss of life. The Mokana IoT security platform is the most comprehensive IoT security solution for industrial manufacturers that are concerned about cyber attacks on embedded systems, IoT devices, and industrial cloud systems. That's really cool, Matt. Yeah, I really like the fact that they let um, companies architect sort of their own um, system or network because it's stated that they provide a vendor agnostic software abstraction layer so they can use whatever chips they want to use they're they're not locked down to one type of system right and i think that was pretty cool how they had a a large number of the chips that can be used and they're the newer chips that are out there so i think it's aimed at um enterprises that are kind of replacing or maybe refreshing some of their footprint that they have for iot Mm -hmm. and when you do that you'll have a new um a new processor, perhaps a new um, trusted platform module that's installed on the hardware. And then you can kind of complement that with the Mokana um, nano asterisks, right? Yeah. So any of those things you can kind of deploy out there. It's all about solid ground. I always like to think of the movie Inception, right? So in Inception, you had a token, Right. Right. So that was uh, either a top or I know in one case it was a set of dice, but that's how they knew where they were at was really where they were at. And it wasn't necessarily in a dream. It's kind of the same with the digital certificates. Right. You have to know if the digital certificate is 100 percent correct or if the environment of which the operating system is or any of the software that's installed on that system is true. Um, And how you do that is with the trusted platform module. That is your token. So kind of using those things is very interesting, I think is critical to ensuring the integrity um, of these installation and IoT devices as they're deployed within the enterprises. That's now. a so good way very, to put it with uh, with the Inception movie. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, that's the number one thing I thought of. I first thought of virtualization, right? Because right. you have a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream. That's kind of like having a system inside of a system inside of a system. But the second thing I thought about was from a security standpoint, if you can construct something that the operating system thinks is real, guess what? The possibilities are endless. So you have to be able to, um, and if you think of it, the architects of those dreams, right, were very skilled. That's when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character had to go recruit for the architect. That's the kind of same thing as a um, somebody who's constructing malware or who is out there kind of trying to construct all of these elaborate things like the iPhone, uh, the iCloud phishing scam was a, a good example of this. But if users don't know what's real, if systems don't know what's real, um, you can't really protect the integrity and, and provide a level of trust. Uh, so, yeah, it is very interesting. But when I saw the movie, that was kind of like the two things I thought of security and virtualization. Like it was really cool. So cool. awesome. So, yeah, let's jump into our uh, into our next story, kind of taking a technology that is not popular with business and making it popular with business, right? Yeah, so this one's about security improvements, uh, making Android more attractive to businesses. Why can't it be like BlackBerry? (laughs) So um, accepting Android as a staff uh, bring your own device option has always been tempered by security officers understanding that it's less secure than iOS. In the last year, Google has made serious efforts to reduce that perception. The Android Security 2016 Year in Review report, published this week by Google, describes two areas the company has particularly improved Android security, updates and the elimination of malicious apps. Security updates or patches have always been a problem in the Android ecosphere. The difficulty is the sheer number of different Android manufacturers involved, some of whom rarely distribute the monthly updates provided by Google. Over the last year, Google has worked on improving this. They've concentrated on two areas, improving the discovery and responsible disclosures of vulnerabilities in its partner's products and improving the speed and regularity of device patching. Android smartphone has achieved what can be described as partial success. As of December 2016, says the report, 735 million Android devices report a uh, 2016 security patch level. The downside is it still leaves a similar number that did not. Nevertheless, over the course of the year, Android device manufacturers became more efficient at delivering monthly security updates, including expanding their security programs to accept and address security vulnerabilities specific to their devices. New models of Google's own products, such as Pixel and Nexus, um, and several of the major manufacturers, such as Samsung and LG, They've introduced automatic updating. At the end of 2016, Android 7.1.1 introduced new features to improve updating generally with automatic updates. To do this, says Google, devices have two system images, one for the currently active system and one to receive an updated image. When an update is available, the device downloads the new system image in the background. The device seamlessly switches to the new software update the next time it reboots. As more new phones are sold with Android 7.1.1, this feature will become available on a wider variety of devices. Google has also improved its ability to detect and remove potentially harmful apps, PHAs is what they call it, such as Trojans, spyware, and phishing apps. 
both on the device and from within the Google Play Store. The goal, says Google, is to provide the right protection at the moment it is needed by the user. During 2016, Google's security services performed over 790 million device security scans daily, covering phones, tablets, watches, and TVs. This is up from around 450 million in the previous year. Similar attention is given to the apps in Google Play and PHA installations from Play have fallen dramatically. Trojan installs fell by 51.5%, hostile downloaders by 54.6%, backdoors by 30.5%, and phishing apps by 73.4%. By the end of 2016, Google claims only 0.05% of devices that downloaded apps exclusively from Play contain the potentially harmful app, down from 0.15% in 2015. Google accepts that there is still work to do, especially to protect those devices that install apps from outside of Play, and it expects to do this in the present year. And they said, quote, we believe that advances in machine learning and automation can help reduce PHA rates significantly in 2017, both inside and outside of Google Play. As it stands, according to Google's figures, users of mainstream Google devices that limit app installations to Google Play are increasingly secure, and already significantly more secure than last year. This has to be good news for all organizations with or considering an Android-based BYOD policy for staff. So what are your thoughts on BYOD and um, kind of how uh, how it can improve within enterprise environments? <laughs> I don't like BYOD. <laughs> Well, it, it, it does um, alleviate some pressures from from the enterprise because they don't have to, um, you know, asset tag systems out to people or 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 keep them up to date. But if you're going to um, implement applications that you use for your company to people's phones, you're going to have to somehow ensure that um, there are either policies in place or that their devices um, are configured correctly and are up to date to accept your software. So my question to you is this. Do you think it's more so with the um, proprietary applications that a particular enterprise environment may have or it is the devices of which they're going to be installed on, right? So do I have to make a application as an enterprise that does, you know, either enforce security policy, create a VPN, or it may just, you know, be able to containerize proprietary information? Mm -hmm. Do I need to make that agnostic across all the different devices, whether that be the Play Store, the App Store, um, the Windows Mobile Store? Um, so do we need to start focusing on deploying devices within an enterprise um, that come with a load? Or are we going to make applications that are more agnostic across um, all the different platforms? Wow, what are your thoughts that, on Wow, that? that's a really good question. Um, so some of the clients I've worked for, they actually um, give out the assets with a load on it and maintain maintain the apps and the updates with um the assets uh, themselves. Um, I haven't seen it the other way, but the other uh, the other way, I guess, would be a, I don't know. 
I don't know. I, I think I think it would be advantageous for the developers too to to make it available in the stores and have them um, automatically update it as needed. Right, and I'm sure that there's law firms, um, there's uh, tech firms, right, that have had to cross this, you know, cross this body of water, right? They had to build a bridge to get over this thing, mm-hmm. um, known as either deploying uh, a proprietary application within the enterprise and enforcing security policy that way, or by having a huge cost of issuing devices to all of your employees um, that have a specific software load on them. Now they potentially have to have two phones on them at any time, right? <laughs> Their personal phone and the and the business phone. Yeah, I have one. Yep, I'm like that right now, actually. I, yeah, didn't, I so, didn't want it, but they forced it on me. <laughs> right. But um, in the previous story, what I thought was pretty interesting is how Google in their latest, or Android in their latest um, software, uh, have it so that it downloads a new OS, right? Has that in the background patched or ready to go. So the next time you reboot the device, guess what? It's seamless. That's good. But when is the next time the user will reboot the device? It depends, right? So they could keep the... These things right here are bad because of the fact that um, uptime of these devices is ridiculous, Right? How often do you turn off your phone daily? No, nobody no. does that. Mm-mm. You'd be lucky if you see a user that has turned off their phone um, twice in the two years that they've had it, um, and you know before they go in for a new upgrade. Right? <laughs> right? That would actually be an interesting metric to pull from, like Verizon, AT and T, T Mobile, the people that are on the front lines that are pulling in these phones. It would be very interesting to see the amount of uptime, um, but. And, and to kind of characterize that per if it's an Apple device, an Android device, a Windows device. But I digress. Um, you're right. When do they actually uh, kind of reboot the device and pull down the new OS? I mean, or not pull down the o- new OS, but run the new OS because yeah, I mean, it's already pulled down. I mean, it was great what they were saying, but it's just that, oh, the next time they reboot, well, I can't remember the last time I rebooted my, mis- my, uh, my phone. Right. You don't have a need to. So therefore, you're not going to do it. You know, you have people that are security conscious and keep their phone off all the time until Mm -hmm. they have to use it. That's actually less security conscious um, than keeping it on all the time and getting your updates, because now when you power it on, you know, the thing is vulnerable. It's going to take forever to get updates as well. Right, exactly. So I know. And what happens if you don't get the updates right now? You have a vulnerable phone that you're using on a network. Or it knows right so. away when you come on, hey, this phone's vulnerable and, and starts to go at it. But we both use iPhones, and I know um, from time to time you've picked up their, your phone and you've seen it updating your apps, right? Yep. It's like the coolest it does that thing. automatically. Yeah, I, yeah. I want that. You update yes, it for me. Uh, you tell me when. I'll, I'll leave it available for you. Now, also, I think that we've seen a shift. Um, there's kind of a shift in the mobile market, right? Because Moore's Law. Previously, it was very expensive to get high processing power on these phones and high capacity for the storage of these phones, right? Oh, it was right? very difficult, you know. Actually, you what, know, just four years ago, you know, four or five It was years very ago. expensive. Yeah. Now you have a micro SD card that has 128 gigs, 256 gigs of memory on it. 
it's very cool to see that shift. Now, I think that Google has taken advantage of that in the sense that they're able to pull down a whole other OS, which may be a gig in and of itself, right? But the user won't really care about that. And they patch that in the background and they get it ready for when you reboot the phone. I mean, four years ago, that would be unheard of because you had barely enough storage on the onboard storage on the phone to do what it needed to do in daily operations. Now it's like, you know what? Storage is cheap, so we can kind of have more flexibility on the endpoint and pull down an, a patched OS. And then next time they reboot the phone, we can institute that new operating system. Um, that'd be really cool to do in an enterprise environment as well. But I think where they can bridge the gap is kind of take Apple's methodology for application updates when you have the app store on the phone with applications that are on the phone where it automatically updates those apps. Right. And it's completely seamless to the user. You see the little timer, right, or the little you know mm-hmm. circle, and it's like you're just it waiting for it to get 100 percent complete. Yeah. yeah, and you know it doesn't take long at all to update whether I'm on LTE or I'm at home. I know I have mine configured, so when I'm on Wi-Fi, it pulls it down. But if I'm you know using mobile, you know, all the time, and I know I don't connect to a Wi-Fi, I can change that setting so it can pull it down. I have unlimited. I don't really care about the data. Data is cheap and storage is cheap. So this is a perfect time for um, either application developers or for the mobile device operating system developers to kind of think of a new methodology for patching these systems and sustaining them, um, you know, in the life cycle when the customer has it. Awesome. So, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. And with that, we'll take a break. VicTech is a leader in developing security test plans and procedures and identifying the appropriate tools to support a certification test and evaluation efforts. They work with software developers to ensure security software development practices are implemented. VicTech translates security policy and requirements into an IA configuration implementation that considers your operational environment. By implementing world-class cybersecurity solutions and working together as a partner, VicTech helps their clients meet and exceed their objectives. And we're back. What's going on? So we have one more awesome story for you guys. Um, And then, you know, we're kind of going to close the show out, but we'll be back next week, so don't get too sad. So this last story is pretty cool. Uh, Weaponized Word document targets Mac OS um, and Windows. So a recently uncovered malware campaign was found to be using a weaponized Word document that can be used to target both Mac OS and Windows machines, Fortinet researchers warn. So the campaign relies on our favorite macro-enabled Word file uh, designed to execute a malicious VBA, which is a visual basic for application code. Upon a certain point, up to a certain point, the code execution follows the same steps, but then it takes a different path depending on whether it runs Mac OS or Windows. Matt, should I so enable has, my uh, macros? Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you want to get hacked, right? Or if you want to get compromised, absolutely go ahead and do that. Um, just click, yeah, trust this document. It's perfect. So this has been a public service announcement from InfoSec Sync. <laughs> do not enable macros or BBA or trusted document. Do not make it a trusted document in Word unless you really know where it came from. Um, better yet, just leave it in the cloud and view it on your browser. There you go. Why even pull it down? Right. But either way, similar to a typical macro attack, as soon as the user opens a malicious document, they are prompted to enable macros, which automatically causes the VBA code to be executed. The VBA uses slightly modified code taken from Metasploit Framework. 
The code calls the auto open um, function, which reads base64 encoded data from the comments property of the file. Moving forth, the execution routes differs depending upon whether the victim runs Mac OS or Windows. On Mac OS, because Python is pre-installed, Python scripts can be executed by default. The malicious attack takes this route. Thus, the base64 decoded script is executed to download another Python script, which researchers discovered to be a slightly modified version of the Python interpreter file, which is also part of the Metasploit framework. Once this script is executed, it attempts to connect to a remote domain on port 443, but Fortinet says that the server wasn't answering client requests during the analysis. However, security researchers observed that the Python process remains active on the system while trying to connect to the reachable server. On the Windows system, however, the VBA script makes a DOS-style command string starting with command.exe, then starts powershell.exe hidden and executes the base64 encoded code. The PowerShell script was designed to decompress a piece of gzip data to get another PowerShell script and execute it. The malicious script would ultimately download a file into a newly allocated buffer with this file found to be a 64-bit DLL file. The file is executed when the thread function is returned. The malware was also observed establishing communication with the server, but Fortinet did not further in any information into the capabilities. Both macOS and Windows malicious programs were observed trying to communicate with the subdomains of vvlxpress.com. Although macro malware has been hitting Windows users for a very long time, this is the this is only the second attack to date to abuse malicious macros in an attempt to compromise Macs. After another was detailed in early February. However, this is the first time the same macro-enabled Word document has used to target both macOS and Windows users, and that is killing two birds <laughs> with one Word document. Yeah, that's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, so definitely very interesting stuff. Um, you know, again, always be vigilant. Um, it's always a good idea to kind of look at the, what the latest trends are and listen to this podcast because we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. And these types of attacks can hit your enterprise at any time. If you're a network defender, it's critical. If you're a network attack or network exploit person, kind of on a vulnerability research team or on a red team or a pen tester, it's perfect too because you kind of see um, what's effective and what has worked in the wild and what you can kind of pull in to run on your environment to kind of determine if the network defenders need to fix it up a little bit. So uh, either way, it's good all the way around. So um, I guess we can uh, close out the show, right? Do you hear that? I sure do. So um, what do we have coming up, Matt? Um, Nothing much coming up, kind of gearing up for the National Cyber Summit that's going to be in June. Looking forward to that. So we'll be there in the flesh, in person. So be sure to check us out. Awesome. And um, we have DEF CON coming up as well, but that's, you know, kind of far off. Um, Nothing in the immediate term, though. Awesome. So um, stay tuned for uh, next week. And until then, thanks for staying in In sync. With InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V I K T E C H dot net.